This is Motley Fool Money. Welcome to Motley Fool Money, the special mailbag edition this Sunday. With me, I'm Scott Phillips. Firstly, with me as always, Dr. Anirvana Harty. How are you, Doc? I am all right. I could always be better, but I am all right. Do we, is that glass half full or glass half empty? Well, you know, the market is down and all those things are going on. Coronavirus is still around, so I don't, I don't know what I can say good. Just but think of all the upside potential. Yeah, but I'm thinking of the downside potential too. <laughs> <laughs> the upside potential is there if I don't die of corona, right? They say the, they say the optimist thinks the glass half full. The pessimist says it's half empty. And the realist knows it needs to be washed up. So <laughs> sure. make of make of that what you will. And that's a lovely way to start our mailbag. Actually, you episode. need to wash your glasses these days <laughs> properly <laughs> because I read somewhere that you know coronavirus can leave on glass for like four days or something like that. Oh man, the realist knows the hand sanitizer is required <laughs> at all times. <laughs> or. <laughs> We've started with a tangent, which is nice because our regular listeners will know that's exactly... If we didn't, they'd be worried about us, I think. That is true. They know the world is still turning while we're doing tangents. Mate, let's crack straight in. We've got a heap of questions. I'm going to try desperately to not add too much to your wonderful answers. We'll try and see how quickly we can get through more of these questions than we otherwise might be able to. What do you reckon? Uh, let's do it. All right. Uh, I should say, by the way, we got a question from Chris about the EX20, which actually was the same question we received from Craig um, on Friday's podcast. So, Chris, I will assume our Friday question answered uh, your question, along with Craig's answer, the idea of being companies outside the top 20, investing in those to avoid banking and mining exposure. So we'll move on past uh, Chris's question, but, mate, thank you for adding yours. Next question from Steve. Steve says, hey, guys, love the podcast. Not sure if this is the correct platform to ask a question, but I will attempt it anyway. Steve, you have nailed it in one, mate. This is it. My partner and I were having a drink on Friday after the chaos, and we decided to log in our respective super accounts to have a laugh at the losses. I love that approach. I'm down a sizable chunk, ouch, but when my partner opened her account, she found she was 100% in cash. Talk about a nice surprise, at least in this environment. After panicking, telling her she had missed out on 10 years of gains, what is the sensible step from here? High growth? Thanks, Steve. So Steve's, Steve's right, right? Like over the last three months, it felt great being in cash. Over the previous 10 years, it was terrible being in cash. Both those things are in the past though, Doc, as we say. It doesn't really matter what happened in the past. All that matters is what happens from here. So Steve's in shares. His partner's in cash. So again, in the short term, she takes the bickies or he takes the bickies. In the, in the long term, it's Steve. What do we do from here, mate? Yeah, like I mean, mate, here the, the issue here is um, again can't give personal advice. We don't know what of you know how many years of uh, investing they have ahead of them. But you know, like I'll just try to answer that g- genetically. If somebody has got m- many years of like you know, let's say a decade plus of uh, mm. investing ahead of them, um, then I mean, I mean, you know, right now the shares are definitely attractive in the sense that it, well, the prices have come down. The price to earnings on a trailing basis look attractive. Of mm. course, maybe not so on a, on a forward basis because the forward earnings are going to compress because of you know coronavirus. But if you if you look forward, let's say you take a ten year view, um, many many businesses would be earning, I would think, a lot more than they earned mm. in last year or twenty nineteen, right? In ten years time, um, I, I truly believe that in ten years time yep. we would look at this and say, well, this was a blip. Uh, it was painful. It was hard, but you know we always have these blips that we get over. And 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 frankly, if we don't get over this, well, then you know whether or not you have money really wouldn't matter because <laughs> because then life would really not be good. <laughs> and, and then probably we'd be all hiding in some cave right, right. that sticks in our hands. Right. Um, uh, so if you know, and I, I I do think that you know, as 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 the humankind, we, we will we will persevere and we will do. We will we will excel. So so my thought would be I'd, I'd be actually invested in the share market. Whether how aggressive really is a, um, it, it is really a personal question. How you know how aggressively they want to invest? But I would really be invested in the share market with with a, a decade plus horizon. That's just sort of my general view. That's what I am doing. Um, you know, and I'm really investing with even like in a two decade view. Nice. I'm going to try not to over. I guess I'm. I'm trying to stick to my, my uh, resolution of not saying the same thing Zox just said. Um, so I completely agree with everything you said. I think in terms of growth, just remember you're going to be investing. Hopefully, if you build a decent enough nest egg by retirement, well and truly past retirement. So even if you're going to retire in 15 years, hopefully you're investing for another 25 or 30 after that. So really, your time horizon is still going to be maybe even 45 years from here if you're 50, for example. So thinking about that in the context of then how you think about growth. I absolutely agree that a growth strategy, if you're not going to need the capital 
In other words, if you live on the dividends or even sell down small amounts of shares to fund your expenses, run them to cash the whole thing out. So it depends on what phase you're in, how much money you're going to have by retirement. But yes, absolutely shares. I think growth generally. Um, I really desperately hate the super fund allocations of conservative balance, growth, high growth, all that kind of rubbish. Um, it, it's just not very helpful. And I, I also don't love the, the way they talk about that because really what they're saying is not you know, balance will do less than growth over time. So who would, who in their right mind would choose balance over growth? Except balance has that, has that kind of nice, you know, kind of connotation of, oh, it's sensible and it's thoughtful and it's a really good idea. Who would, who would choose a lower return if they had the option of a higher return? It makes absolutely no sense. What they're really talking about is the amount of volatility. And if you can, your partner can withstand the volatility, shares have always done, you know, the higher proportion you got in shares over time have always done better than a higher proportion or a lesser proportion of shares and a higher proportion of any other asset class. So generally speaking, if you've got a long enough time horizon, I think shares are a wonderful place to be. High growth, look, it depends how they define that. Um, but generally speaking, yeah, I, I would be on the um, heavier shares <laughs> as a proportion of the total end of whatever allocation they gave the description. Any more on Doc, doc on that? No, I think nothing. Not, nothing. Beautiful. Yeah. Question from Chris, mate. Hi, legends. I've bought the dip and I think I'll do well in the long run, but I'm worried about a Great Depression looming. If I were to buy a put option around the current prices to cancel out major downside, what option would you recommend and how do I buy it? Doc, our listeners know very well that all I know about options is how to spell it. So I'm going to throw this one straight to you and see if you have any thoughts on Chris's question. Yes, so... Okay, so I mean a put option, you could if you buy if you're long a put or you buy a put, that basically gives you um, e- effectively it is a it's it's like a hedge. It's an insurance policy, right? It's an insurance policy. So you're going to be paying some premium for it, and effectively the hedge starts working um, at a price the strike price of the current put at which you bought the put mm-hmm. plus the premium that you've paid. So if if right. the put says that. Uh, let's say the put. Let's assume an index put, yes. and the index is let's say five thousand. And yep. if I've got a put that basically hedges me, say from four thousand eight hundred, right? Then I start making money only when the index falls below four thousand eight hundred. Okay. Plus the amount I've paid in premium, <laughs> which is insurance. Right. Right. And so if I paid like you know another hundred or two hundred points on that, then basically I start making only when the index falls below four thousand six hundred. So even in theory, when your your put is making money. In itself, you may still not be covering your costs. So you're not really making money. Yeah. So, you, so this really only works well when there's substantial movement. Like you know, if the if the market were to fall another twenty percent or something yeah. like that, then yeah. you would make money on the put. Um, but it wouldn't. I mean, you'd have to have a lot of that invested to cover an entire portfolio, right? The, yeah. The dollar value of the put you'd have to buy and the insurance premium you'd have to pay to to cover your entire current portfolio. I don't know. I don't. I know nothing about it. I don't know how the maths works out. But I. It'll be substantial. Yeah. And if it doesn't work out for you, you're really har- it's, it's, you're harming yeah. a, a decent chunk of your portfolio, right? Yeah. So the way most people, like, you know, most professional managers who do this sort of thing would 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 work with, and then in the past when I have done it, uh, is you tend to, like, you know, decide what percentage of portfolio you want to protect. You probably yeah, okay. protect only 10 to 15%, maybe 20% of your portfolio. Right. That's what you buy in uh, as, 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 as a hedge. Um, most of the time, you're going to let your hedge expire. And that's a good thing because okay. it's just yeah, like right. buying. It's just you like buying money. insurance. Yeah, yeah. Um, you have lost money paying for the insurance, but then the, the, the remainder of your portfolio, the eighty percent of your portfolio, has actually gone up. Yeah. Um, so it's okay. And and sometimes what you could do is like you know people who play with index. Um, like if you think about the index, you could actually finance the the put by by selling a put at a lower strike price. Right. So that gives you protection between the higher strike price and the lower strike price. Yeah. Um, but you're effectively buying the market at the lower price yeah. because you're obliged to buy the market at the lower price. But that works okay because, at least in this particular in, in situation, it might be okay because if the market has already fallen 30% yeah. and you're committing to buy the market at, say, uh, after it falls another 20%, right. more likely than not, at that point, you're actually going to be making money. So yeah. it's okay to buy the market. And if you know, so you're using the lower price to pay off some of the premium that you rent. So that's another. Personally, I have, you know, I've gone from hedging to not hedging. I'm actually not hedged uh, at all, really, at this point. Yeah. And um, what I what I'd rather prefer is if you've got some cash, then I always treat the cash actually as a hedge because that's probably the best right, hedge. Right, right, right. You've got the cash and you can deploy the cash. Um, if, if you really are, 
you know, want to smooth out volatility. That's another thing. I mean, again, this is this gets into the behavioral part. Yeah. Some people really like to do that because they, you know, they're smoothing out their returns. Um, it's also smoothing out the upside as well because you're Correct. praying for the for the premium, right? So you're getting less upside, less downside. Yeah. So if if you're happy taking the volatility, then cash, in my view, is the best hedge yep. in in that sense the next best hedge is an index spread put as, as described because you, you're buying yep. the index at a much lower price i'm an eternal optimist mate but i reckon the best hedge is actually to be fully invested because when the market goes up you get the full value from it yeah I mean, that's, <laughs> that's, that's mostly true like again like this you know the thing is that you are right right the market goes up more often than it doesn't yep. therefore if you're fully invested you're better off but it's the, it's the, the, the side thing is that you want to be invested in a way that makes you comfortable. Totally. And if that yep. means you're going to be invested 80% and 20% in cash, that's for you. Totally. And right? I think that to Chris, that's, look, that's the answer. Chris talks about a great depression, right? I mean, if, if Chris, if you honestly think this market goes down to 80%, then sell your shares now because you're better off having the cash than having, having any sort of option, right? Because if, if you're going to cover 50% of your 10%, 15%, 25% of your portfolio, the other half will... 80% is still going to fall if the market falls so dramatically. If you really honestly think this is Great Depression time, uh, then I don't think you can probably, if you have to hedge a whole, your whole portfolio, which would cost you a fortune premiums, even if you are right, you would have been better being cash anyway um, to, to redeploy that cash at you know whatever expectation you have of where the market falls to. Um, because again, that, that put pays you out, but only at a certain level. If it falls further from there, you're still, you're still on your own. So um, I, I, Doc's point is exactly right. I, I think... I personally think hedging is a bit of a folly the way it's sold because they're selling lack of volatility without you really knowing that's what you're kind of buying. It feels they sell as being smarter and making money in all markets and that all feels kind of somehow good. Um, but but you need to be really honest with yourself and others. As Sox already said, it, it's it's purely behavioral. If you feel better having cash, do that. If you feel better with a put, by all means do that. Just be mindful that you're paying for the privilege. Um, and maybe it pays off, right? But the problem is over time, it doesn't pay off. In fact, after the market's fallen this far, the chance that you make money from holding or owning shares rather than trying to profit further losses, the odds are against you profiting from further losses to the same degree as you were putting that money into shares and holding them for the long term. So just be be thoughtful about that. I saw some numbers recently. It's it, it's just phenomenally, yeah. The, the returns are much much better to own shares once the market's fallen by meaningful amounts than trying to profit from further falls. No, it doesn't mean that can't happen. It won't happen. Just that on average over time, even if it works out this time the probabilities that won't work out the next half dozen times. And so when you start a strategy like this, you're probably going to cost yourself money rather than make it over the long term. Yeah. All right, let's move on to a question from Mark for Scott and Doc's mailbag. He says, it's Wednesday, April 1st, April Fool's Day. Since this drama started, I've lost 16% of my portfolio. Pretty devastating. I can assure you as I'm retired and just had crossed a line where I don't have to save anymore, but can just start spending. So 16% is a lot. But the ASX is down 28% and the NASDAQ is down 24%, Dow down 32%. Am I doing well or should I be dragged down the road tarred and feathered? I'm active with international ETFs including NASDAQ, Asia, Tech Tigers and CSL, etc. I don't do bonds, cash, etc. So I guess Mark's question is twofold, mate. Is he doing well? But I think to some degree too, he's also looking at the market saying, I'm down, it hurts a lot. Kind of just, what would you say to Mark? Well, Mark, mate, I mean, like you're definitely doing better than the market, right? Yeah. I mean, so so that's a win. Yep. Um, and, and you know, I'd take that win right now because, I mean, uh, you're basically beating the market. Yes, you're beating the market by being down, but you're still beating the market, which is, which is a good spot to be. Um, and, I mean, you know, nobody can predict if in the interim the market is going to go further down mm. or it's going to bounce around, is it going to go up? I mean, you know, there are various types of charts that I see that, you know, people make based on previous uh, episodes like this. But, you yeah. know, if every episode was identical or similar to the past episode, then there would be no problem and we'd all be geniuses. But, you know, <laughs> so part, 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 part of the thing is that we wouldn't know what, what to do. I, I, I think being retired actually is a very... It throws unique challenges because if you're getting new, no new cash, and you're seeing sort of your portfolio um, getting dissipated to some extent, you know, or dissipated to a lower extent, that yep. is really going to hurt. Right. It also is going to hurt because you are potentially playing with a much larger amount, right? Sixteen percent of a larger amount is, yep. I mean, fundamentally, sixteen percent, sixteen percent of one 
$100,000, 16% of a million dollars is still 16%. <laughs> That's right. But, the buying, and, but yes, honestly, yes. it doesn't really work that way, right? That's because 16% right. of a million dollars is a lot of money. Correct. Because for most people, that is actually a lot of money. That's three it. or four new cars, mate. Yeah, three or four, or, or, you know, or one, you know, one fancy car, yeah, correct, um, correct. or, you know, um, or, or a fancy boat or something like that. But, yep. you know, whatever it is, like, I mean, it is, it is psychologically very hard. Totally, mate. But, but, you know, what I, I think... Like as Scott answered the previous question, if somebody's just retired, they probably got another, you know, 20, 25 years of life left. They're probably going to be investing. There's probably some dividends coming through from, uh, if you have quality companies, they're probably going to pay some dividends still. Yeah. Um, you know, that's part of investing. I guess somebody who has invested their life probably knows this already. So I'm just yep. probably repeating uh, everything that they know, uh, everything that Mark knows in this, co- in, in this context. Mm-hmm. So just, weathering it through and y- yep. you know i would not think that just because the index I- indices are down so much that you should also be down yeah, that right. your diversification and your allocation and your strategy is working for you in this instance yep. um so yeah i take that as a win it's absolutely a win mark i'm gonna only add to to disagree with docs only slightly not really just to, just to give a different perspective which is i don't reckon you should take any five six week period and try and assess whether or not you're doing well or badly as an investment strategy other than if you had deliberately invested to try and minimize downside and minimize volatility and you expected this would happen. If you just said, look, I want a portfolio that only falls by half of the market's falls, then I think that's you've done the right thing. If it's like, I bought the stocks I wanted to buy, it just so happens they're down this much, um, but I still believe in the long term, then that's a different story altogether. If I'd have owned a portfolio that was down 60% right now, for example, I'd be pretty unhappy. But if I did it in the view that over five or 10 years, I was going to make a lot more money, I'd happily accept that volatility for the return. So my, my overarching comment, I suppose, mate, is um, I get it. Um, I, look, you're doing very well relative to the market, as Ox already said. All I would say is maybe try to whatever extent you can to wean yourself off the short-term movements and short-term relative movements compared to the market. I've had periods where stocks have gone down, have gone nowhere, other periods when they've gone up really fast um, and sometimes at complete odds to where the market's going. That's just kind of what happens because sentiment changes and people change their minds. So great result really happy for you um this volatility isn't over by the way so expect that you may well lose more from here uh, and the market may lose more from here or frankly because you've lost less maybe the market recovers faster than your portfolio does that's all completely okay yes we think you should keep score yes we think you should try and beat the market where you can far more importantly though is a strategy that you like that you are bought into that you feel great about and even though it hurts when you lose money over the long term if you see that portfolio making money for you and funding your lifestyle, that's the one you should be great and happy to own regardless of what happened over the last six months. Well, six weeks, I should say, not six months. Any more on that, Doc? No, I have nothing to add. Question from Peter. Hi, Scott. A big shout out to you and the Doc throughout the coronavirus crisis. Your foolish banter and insights have been a calming influence in what has been a very unsettling event for many. Thank you, Peter. It's very kind. Thinking the time is right to start a plan for the future that will never be the same post the crisis. Love your combined thoughts on what trends will be accelerated, e.g. a heightened awareness around health and well-being, an accelerated move to the e-wallet, more work from home, etc. So, Doc, I love this because you're our resident futurist. Uh, so I'm going to – I may have a couple of thoughts at the end, but I probably won't. Your thoughts, mate, on what trends are being accelerated from this crisis and the ones maybe that we should be careful not to accelerate, the ones that maybe – you know, both sides of that coin, where are the opportunities and where are the maybe the watch outs that, that might seem obvious now, but in the fullness of time may not necessarily be the sort of trends that people expect? Yeah, I love this question, actually. So one of the things about, so I guess at a very high level, I think of this from a habit formation point of view, yeah. right? And this is pretty unique in terms of what is happening with the coronavirus is, um, you know, most of these, most most countries are forcing their citizens in mass to do certain things. Now, the question is, how long does this go on? Um, behavioral scientists would say that something between, you know, three months to six months actually does change behavior, right? And and certain things um, then can have spiraling effects, right? So one one of the interesting things here is if uh, businesses think that work from home actually is working reasonably well, then that has effect on how businesses going forward think about, um, you know, allocation of, mm. 
offices and things like that, right? So, so think about commercial real estate, right? How is commercial real estate going to be impacted if offices need to be right. only provisioned at say 60% or 70% of what they're provisioned right now? Right. Because A, you provide the flexibility of work from home and B, it doesn't compromise your um, workflow and C, um, the you know the employees get uh, flexibility because, uh, and employees probably save time, right? The, you know, think about how it impacts uh, cities mm. and things like that. It even impacts city planning. If people actually, if, if even 20% of the people decide to work from home and this becomes the norm, then uh, that changes a lot of things even in terms of, so there's, there's a cascading effects that mm. can happen. Um, that's one. Um, work from home is, is definitely, so software tools, services mm. that enable work from home, I think that was already happening. Um, that is likely to accelerate. The uh, at least that's what I think. The other thing that's interesting is it, it to some extent the power of the cloud is has been in full force. So in in a way, people are working from home, but most of the time, what we are using is is cloud solutions, mm-hmm. right? And even if you think about coronavirus and how the data is being cal- collected and how the data is being disseminated, that is also being enab- enabled by cloud services. So various, you know. Um, cloud data services or cloud mm. data crunching platforms. They're being used to assimilate, collect, analyze the data. So I think that trend um, accelerates, in my view. Um, mm-hmm. So that has impact on not just cloud services at, at, the, at the top layer, but also right. in terms of just the cloud infrastructure providers, right? You know, in terms of how the infrastructure is being provided and provisioned for the cloud. Yep. So that's an interesting area. Um, another one that it's kind of maybe obvious, but um, is is e-commerce right now? If you think about e-commerce penetration, e-commerce penetration in as a fraction of total retail, it was probably 10 12 percent. I'm just giving you U.S. figures, but it's it's you know that figure is roughly yeah, roughly consistent across sort of the most of the Western developed world, right? Okay. You know, and 12 to 15 percent sort of penetration levels. U.S. a little bit ahead of everybody else, I think. Um, no, I mean, up now? you know, but we, you know, I, I think it's probably the same in okay. Europe. That's my guess. Cool. Uh, it's actually the, the penetration of e-commerce is higher in some developing countries because, or, or in, in China, for example, because again, uh, infrastructure investing countries have been provisioned to facilitate people to actually come and 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 shop, right? right, right. Whereas in many places, it's actually easier to just get the package delivered to you uh, because it's not as convenient yeah. to go to shop. Yeah. Uh, so, I'm, uh, being India being an exam, example, right? If you have to travel three hours to get to the shop, why would you do that? <laughs> it requires yeah, a lot true, of yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? So, so that I think e-commerce definitely gets a lift, um, and and even just you know, if you get used to buying certain things on e-commerce, you just find it it's very convenient. You you know, that, that definitely gets a lift. The other thing related to that would be, I think, think of coronavirus and how people are actually unwilling to actually touch cash. Yeah, right. Businesses okay. are now yep. asking that you actually pay waves. Yeah, to. yeah, supermarket, petrol stations I've been to in the last week. Or right. Yeah, yeah. They, they're really not wanting to take cash. So I think a move right. to e-payments, electronic payments, cashless society um, can can definitely get a lift this you know if i was a you know reserve bank this, this is probably what i'd do i'd say no cash anymore we're just going to go electronic <laughs> and, and one of the best parts of that is it removes a lot of the cash that slushes around in the economy but never gets shown to the to the tax man that gets actually eradicated <laughs> as well this is really gonna make cool. some people unhappy man well, but it makes you know, more cash. I mean, there's another way to think of it. More cash for the government. Totally. M- more tax for the government. More yep. services for us, right? I mean, assuming the government does the right thing uh, with the money. Um, that's that. The Another thing that has, I think it's going to get a huge boost is telehealth, right? And that's yep. sort of, it's... Um, it seems counterintuitive and, and there's a lot of bureaucracy dragging their feet at telehealth, but a lot of things can be done via telehealth and now even here in Australia for example Medicare is now supporting telehealth for GPs and things like that Um, and even for specialists Uh, but it comes with a time frame oh we are supporting this until September this September 30th I mean the reason why Mm -hmm. wouldn't we support this beyond September 30th because and, 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 and I get it there are instances where a doctor has to absolutely see the patient right but modern medical 
care is all based on assessment from tests and you know in an australian doctor typically does not actually need to see the patient and touch the patient okay you need to maybe feel the heart but if you can yeah, get the heart yeah, measurement done yeah. at home uh, right and if you if you describe the patient describes a feature and you don't have to actually collect if they need if you need some specimen collected that specimen can be collected at a specialized lab right okay so the initial consultation as opposed I mean obviously the specialists only do their thing or the, the lab collection needs to do their thing in person. Yeah. But some of the diagnosis or some of the referrals can be done online. Yeah. So like for example so yeah, so like for my my wife is an uh, obstetrician and gynecologist. What she is doing is she is doing most of her initial consult because she needs to see uh, she needs to do a physical examination mm-hmm. uh, as a gynae. So yep. she's doing that. But all the follow up stuff she's actually trying to do um, on, on telehealth right, because okay. because there you're discussing results. Yes, of course. Right? Yeah, and you're discussing yeah. samples collected and things yeah. like that. Yeah. So that doesn't actually need a physical. Now, there's a lot of advantages to that, right? If you think about the advantages, right? The person doesn't have to take a day off to come to the doctor's office sure. and then wait, find parking. <laughs> there's, a, there's a lot of pain that you're actually totally, eradicating. Totally. You could actually be at work yep. and receive the phone call yep. and deal with it so you didn't actually lose. This is a huge productive And I'm sure your wife's rooms are very, very different, but the, all the doctors I go, so you got to spend another half an hour, forty-five minutes well, in the waiting room before yeah, you can get like, in, right? You know, like, this is, but this is, you know, you, you, there's patient after patient that you are seeing. Yeah. You are waiting. Uh, you have to find parking. For sure. For sure. It is a productivity gain. You know, so I get it. That you know, the, all the parking, uh, you know, parking lots are going to be empty, and those people making, you know, Wilson's parking makes money off parking. They're not going to be happy with this. But in my view, this is a there's a productivity gain for everyone here. Um, so mm-hmm. I think that's a big thing. Uh, uh, yeah. So telehealth, I think, is a is a is a big deal. Yeah. Um, yeah. So those are the things that I think can uh, can get a lift. I like it. I'm I'm a philistine on telehealth. I've got to say, if I if I got something wrong with me, I want to actually go and talk to the doctor so they can look, feel, touch, check. I don't I don't want to I don't want to call a doctor on Skype. I've got to say. Do, so just do it on Facetime. I know Skype is not that great, but you can do it on Facetime. It'll it'll work fine. Until even, the doctor reads through the screen. E- even your prime minister has recommended <laughs> Facetime. Is that a recommendation or not? Well, he said we should have parties on FaceTime. That yes. I am not. But, but my, my question is: Should we be listening to that, or should we do the opposite? No, I think you should do that. <laughs> I am recommending that as well. <laughs> All right, very good. Um, I have not a great deal to add. I'm going to add a couple of thoughts. Um, I think, to some degree, Doc's point is really valid because. Um, during SARS and other things, you know, telecommuting was supposed to be all over after SARS, right? 2003, I think it was, Doc. That was supposed to be the time we all stopped traveling. We all used, used what was it, Skype at the time? It must have been, or MSN Messenger or something, whatever it was at the time. That was supposed to be the future and never really eventuated. We were traveling more than we ever have, at least until a couple of months ago. Maybe, as Doc says, the length of this one is the difference. I, I would, I would probably send a note of caution maybe because I'm being contrarian for the sake of it but just be careful about extrapolating too far and paying too high a price for those potential futures in and of themselves on that acceleration so some of those will happen some won't or if they do happen they may happen slower than you imagine uh, we have electric cars now but we sort of have flying cars um, that would have been promised years ago of course we also have the entire world's knowledge in our pockets on our phones so things things do tend to accelerate different rates right and and the fact they they're going to happen at some point in the future, I'm sure we'll use telehealth at some point in the future. Um, is that a year away? Is it ten years away? Is it hundred years away? I don't know, and I don't really have a view. So I'm not suggesting Doc's wrong or right on this one. More just that broadly, um, the fact the trend is real doesn't mean necessarily will be accelerated or to the degree you think. The other one is for me from an investing perspective. I don't think we mentioned this on Friday, mate, but the the whole the lessons we're supposed to learn from these things. Investors in particular are terrible at this. You know, for those of us who are old enough, 1987 was supposed to be the end of conspicuous consumption, right? We were supposed to have learned our lessons. Wall Street, the movie, was supposed to be a cautionary tale. In fact, what it did was inspire a whole generation of traders who wanted to go and make a fortune on Wall Street being good and Gecko. Gecko was supposed to be the anti-hero. He turned out to be a hero for a couple of generations of Wall Street traders. So, you know, make of that what you will. To some degree, the, thing, the lessons we think we're going to learn, we don't necessarily. Up to Doc's point, though, you know, it is, it is moving in that direction. To some degree, as, as you've already mentioned, mate, the work from home thing, I mean, The Fool's been a work-from-home business in Australia since we started, effectively. We have a small office uh, up on the Gold Coast, but most of us work from home. You and I work from home um, every day of the week. We always have the the whole office in literally in our pocket. I can pick up. I've got a not – to, not to throw a brand at you, mate, but I've got a Chromebook, as you well know, and our listeners may or may not know. It literally has nothing installed on it other than Chrome and a couple of bits and pieces. I can do my entire job from a – you know, network connected device I don't have anything stored on my local drive it all does its own thing by itself um, again whether it's a, a, a Chromebook or not the, the reason I use that as an example is because it doesn't have the kind of word or uh, outlook or anything loaded on it that we otherwise would use literally everything's available on the web now the fool was a bit ahead of time for that probably because we're a new internet based business we always kind of have been since 93 
but there is some reality to that, right? If other businesses start doing the same thing, that's kind of where we end up. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I, I don't have much to add to that. Yeah, I think your point about paying the right price, you don't want to overpay for stuff. Um, yeah, I think it's that's spot on. Like, I mean, you know, you can look at the future, you can look at the future growth opportunities, but I mean, you can't you can't pay infinite dollars for even that future opportunities, right? So you need to pay. Right, right. And I must say, yeah, I guess it's more, I mean, the price, of, I just want to just draw people's attention. Some of the trends we expect won't work out the way May we not think. I would, yeah. I would be... I would be a little bit hesitant for people to jump on these things and like, obviously this will happen. Some will absolutely. Some will happen for a little while but slower pace than you expect. And others will kind of die away. You know, Skype was, I think we sold for $8 billion to eBay at some point. Uh, to Microsoft, I think. Uh, eBay first and then eBay sold it to Microsoft. Oh, was it so, was it sold yeah. eBay? Okay, I didn't know that. eBay paid okay. a fortune. I think, they, I think Microsoft got the better deal of that. Anyway, in any case, okay. the, the point was kind of at that point, that was supposed to be the new big thing. Um, now, telecommuting, Zoom, that has become a new thing but how you invested in that to work um, slightly different, slightly different. I'm, I'm still outcome. amazed. What would have eBay, which is a buyer-seller platform, got to do with the... I think the idea was supposed to connect buyers and sellers. That was the idea. It was supposed to be this technology that would allow you to maybe chat about okay. your purchase or something. I don't okay. really know. I'm pretty sure that's true. I, correct me if I'm wrong. Feel free to it's, hit me yeah. up on social media and make me look like a deal if I'm wrong about that. But I, I have a... I think that's right. I think that's right. We'll, we'll let someone else decide for us. Should we do that? All right, mate, time for another question. This one, we're going to go to, as much as I love the socials, we're going to go to our uh, emails and an email from some of our listeners. We haven't, we haven't addressed some of those for a little while. All right, um, what do we start with? Let's see, I'm trying, we've got so many guys. It's a, it's a great, great list. All right, here we go. Uh, a question for the podcast, no name, no last name, please. And luckily our, our wonderful hardworking member services team have given me your last name. So all I can talk, call you is Ian, uh, which is good because that's my young bloke's name too. Love listening to you guys from London. Keeps me in touch with what's going on back home. Mate, hopefully you're, um, hopefully you're doing okay in London as we, as we speak because I know you guys are in lockdown there as well. A question about Corona. Is, it, isn't the, is the only question that matters about Corona whether you have lemon or lime in it? Which one do you put in your Coronas? There you go, Doc. A lighthearted Corona question. This, this is about the bee, not about the virus. Funnily enough, speaking about human nature, mate, like I, I love people and I think we're all very special flowers. Mm. Apparently the Corona beer sales fell 15% in the wake of the coronavirus. Well, that's very interesting. I, 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 am, I am completely... I, so, that's, that's, so that's the power of subconscious. I don't think anyone consciously says, mm. I'm not going to drink the beer in case I get the virus. I mean, I mean maybe there's one in every thousand people who genuinely thinks that. Everybody else, that's the power of suggestion. That's the power of like, when you, when you think, we think we're all rational creatures, right? And we think everyone else is as well. Even if you think you are, trust me, other people aren't. Anyway, <laughs> massive tangent. Doc, lemon or lime? So, so Ian, <laughs> I'd take some maybe lime with it. Actually, you know, none would have been my answer. But if that, so, uh, maybe some, some lemon maybe um, on the side. I'm, actually not, I'm not a big fan of Corona the beer itself. Yeah, me either. Uh, uh, you know, I, I have, you know, I like, you know, more pale ale type of others, you know, stuff. Or like, you know, I have a Stella maybe. Stella. Have have. There you go. But, Very good. Yeah. But yeah, that's my answer. So, and the only good thing to do with the corona is give it to somebody else and drink it to his old mate. Is my is my. You probably can get it over there, and I'm sorry if you can't. Although you are very very close to the home of Guinness, and a you'll know this, Ian. Maybe other listeners may or may not know this. A Guinness extra cold out of the tap in a London pub is very very hard to go past. I'll, I'll just from experience, I may have had a couple when I worked there a decade or so ago, and uh, I I've, I kept the brewery afloat for a bit with with my work colleagues at the time, uh, and it was a, it was a lovely place to have a a nice extra cold Guinness. All right, mate, let's move on to a different question. Question from Todd. Uh, Hi, Scott and Doc. Thanks for the recent podcast and the Q&A sessions. I'm really enjoying them. I'm a brand new fool. I joined in February this year. I now have a diversified portfolio as a result. However, prior to becoming a fool, I built up a significant shielding in NAB with an average price of about 26 bucks. I know it's not a recommended share by your company, but I was wondering what your thoughts were on selling out and buying into something else or should I stay the course? Do you think it will recover? Or do you think my money will work better somewhere else? Thanks in advance, Todd. Oh, <laughs> you know, you know, it's going to be a tough answer when Duck starts that way. Yeah. So here, so I have not looked at the recent price of now. But here's my, here's my thinking with the banks right now. And you know, again, this is like trying to make a prediction, which is really hard to make a prediction. But uh, the, there are a number of things that I think are 
significant headwinds for the bank. So like, for example, this morning, the New Zealand government basically said that New Zealand banks should not be paying dividends, right? And that's basically a way of saying yeah. that you need to preserve capital, yep. right? Um, and the thing that I think I am most concerned about is the flow-on effects of the coronavirus um, lockdown. So the flow-on effect, by that I mean... There's a lot of debt in the commercial real estate sector. Mm. There's a lot of debt in the home sector. And we have, on the home front, we have some of the highest uh, debt to disposable income. And here, the disposable income was the pre-coronavirus disposable income. So therefore, that debt to disposable income, disposable income probably has shrunk now for some people. Um, that really puts the... Um, the the real estate market on notice at least in as far as i'm concerned so now mm. i understand that there's backstop here of some form or the other you know the banks are working with the government to say that well if you can't pay your rent then we defer it mm. we we uh, we you know we still charge interest that's what i understand understand what what the big banks are doing we still charge interest we extend your term but it basically it's effectively pushing the can down further down the road. Yeah, um, it's not addressing any problem. It's in fact compounding the problem, right? To some extent. Now, of course, nobody wants like all of these things to, you know, blow up at the same time because that would be an absolute disaster. Mm. But there is a scenario in which the banks get hammered because their bad debts rise. Now, the fact is that their bad debts are going to rise. That that is almost a given. Yeah. The question really is by how much, and what's mm. going to happen to the banks. Now, I, th I think of the lot, last time I had looked, I think NAB had, was the cheapest or one of the cheapest yeah, in terms of book value. It's, it's there or thereabouts, yeah. Yeah, it's a 0.7 or 0.8 of book yeah. value. Now, of course, the book value is the assets and how do you, <laughs> and which is the loans and how do you, uh, I mean, I'm, I'm almost certain that the assets probably are going to be revalued, right? So, now, at the moment, so let's, let's break that down a second. So, at, at a 0.7 or 0.8 of book value, what they're really saying is you're buying a dollar's worth of NAB assets. So that, that if you look at the financial accounts, and you'll get to why they're going to be written down in a second, but at the moment, if you took the balance sheet and said there's a dollar's worth of assets on the balance sheet, you could buy that dollar for only 70 or 80 cents. Exactly. Ordinarily, that's a, you know, if, you, if you said to me, Scott, I've got 200 bucks in my back pocket, you can buy it from me for 70 bucks, I'd happily do that swap. Yeah. But you're saying maybe not all is as it seems or may not be as it seems. Exactly. So so right now the market is basically saying uh, that, hey, it looks like you are giving me a dollar's asset worth for 70 cents, but I kind of don't believe your dollar's asset, <laughs> dollar worth of assets because I think it's actually worth 80% of the dollar. Right. <laughs> so, so effectively, that gives you an idea of what the market is thinking. Yeah. Now, you know, is it? Is the market correct? Could the market be overestimating, underestimating? I really don't know. I do think personally that mm. the like there are a lot of flow on effects in the sense that you know, for example, there there'll be property investors who would have been renting stuff out on on say Airbnb, which has completely yeah. fallen down, you know, evaporated. Right now, so they are not collecting any rent. Now they might have mortgages to pay, but if they were also living on those. The, the income that they were making, well, they don't have no income. So right. what would they be wanting to do? Probably want to sell some assets. All you need is a bunch of people to be, be interested in selling assets at fire sale prices, mm. and that can actually spiral, right? Or you simply get bad debts altogether, right? So NAB doesn't own any of that property, but it's got loans, and it says, well, I've got $100 worth of loans out there, and those people are paying back the 100 bucks, and the market says, okay, well, I'll buy $100 worth of loans for 70 bucks. That makes some sense. What you're saying here is that you know, people wonder how can the asset value go away? It goes away because the hundred bucks with the loans you think you have, either, well, it actually won't get paid back, or if you have to foreclose on the loan and sell the asset, you may not get the value back. So, in fact, you may only expect to get seventy bucks worth of hundred dollars with the loans repaid, hence the discount to book value. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So right now, if I, if I have to think of problems, I think there's an unemployment problem, but right. there is there's a business problem of business essentially economy being stalled. But I think there is a there's a credit problem that could brew. And credit yep. problems are always very complicated because that really makes things yeah. further complicated. So I I'm not owning any bank at this price that, you know, um, mm. What would you do? I really don't. I don't want to make. I don't want to <laughs> make that suggestion. Yeah, right. I, I am. You know, the banks look cheap in my view, but I'm not a bank investor. My theory is that I, mm. you know, like I mean, here's the thing, right? The, the government could let NAB fail, 
uh, in the sense that, you know, basically shareholders make nothing on it um, and guarantee the deposits, which they already do, and, you know, bail it at half the current share price, for example. That could, you know, could right. happen. Um, it's happened, it has happened in other countries, right? And, you know, I would not I would not assume that any bank is sacred for that reason, I think. So, yeah, yeah. Uh, I am n- not holding any banks. I don't have a buy on any bank. I'm not buying any bank. I'm, I'm on the skeptical side. Mm. I think put it that way. I think that's... Um I think that's right, man. I think I think I agree on almost all of that. Um, I don't. I think it's remarkably. If if banks lose thirty percent of their book of their loan values across the board, then they're effectively going to go broke. They don't have enough equity to cover that. So to some degree, that the deal you're making right now with buying banks at point seven is that you're kind of betting against effectively bankruptcy slash government bailout. Because if 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 they're not bailed out. There's almost I can't imagine a scenario doc in which you end up with thirty percent of a of a loan book going bad and still staying in business. The equity levels are about I want to say mid teens, fifteen, seventeen percent, something like that. So by definition, if you lose thirty percent of your loan book and your loan book's only covered fifteen percent by equity, you're effectively going to go broke as an institution. I would say it's even ten percent. Basically, at ten percent bad loans, I think the banks right will now, be in trouble. Now, if well, you're getting like a thirty percent discount to buy that bank, then that's a and it stays in business then that's a decent discount. Even if you get to that 10% or something less than that, you're still well and truly covered for that decline. That being said, I think that my, my thought about the question, which is, it's, it's a great question, Doc. I actually don't disagree with your advice generally, other than there's probably some opportunity, uh, is probably the best word, to think about the banks as a group rather than individually. I would, if I, if I could buy the banking sector as a group at 0.7 times book, I don't think that'd be a bad investment. Sorry, I don't think it'd be a money losing investment overall. Because if it is... Then, as a group, if one bank goes bust, you know, and it gets bailed out, you've probably still got enough discount with the other three, bought in equal phases, stages to, to be okay. If two go broke, you're in trouble. If three go broke, well, you know, the whole economy is in, in more trouble than Superman, and we're you know we're in a different we're in a different situation altogether. So, at some level, to imagine that you couldn't buy all the banks at 0.7 and make some money, um, as long as the absolute worst doesn't happen to the economy and the country as a whole, would be unlikely. That being said, I don't think you necessarily need to take that risk and I don't necessarily think um, you're going to get market-beating returns from the banks by doing so. So if that, if that kind of makes sense, I don't think you're... So you got you only own one, which I think is problematic. I think the sector as a whole is probably money-making, buying at today's price, but maybe over the long term, maybe not much money. So I don't think there's enough reason to buy them right now. I don't think there's enough reason to hold particularly only a single bank right now. So again, we can't tell you what you should do. Um, I don't own any banks personally, neither does Doc. Only one of our services do we own any bank shares. It's a very small percentage of the portfolio. That was for income reasons. So um, that may not survive either, by the way. Um, Overall, I think I just don't see enough reason to own the banks or hold the banks when there's better opportunities out there. I would be diversifying away from them if it was me. Yeah, I was going to add one more thing. You know, another thing is that even if the so even the book value corrects, right, and let's say it's corrects to one point two, right, or one point three. Like I think one of the things that has happened over the past bull market is I think the banks have enjoyed a very high premium relative to banks elsewhere in the world. Yeah. Right. And personally, I think there's no reason for that to be the case. And and that could be investor optimism, um, especially when you consider in the context of sort of debt to disposable income and things like that. There's right, no reason right. for, and especially these being retail banks, mostly retail banks, largely retail banks, there's again no reason for that premium to be there, but the premium was there. Yep. Now, in our mind, there's always this bias that we think that, well, you know, if the bank reverts back to that premium, then of course you're going to make a lot of money. But what if it does not revert back to that premium? There is always that what if part involved. And the reason I point this out is the banks may have lost, say, 30, 40% of their value, mm. but so has the other parts of the market. There are actually some growth stocks which have lost 50, 60% of their value. Yeah. Probably there are better buys. Right, exactly. So, so in a bargain market, <laughs> yep. when there's bargains everywhere, you just don't have to pick. You don't have to pick a riskier bet in that sense, right? I mean, this appears to be a risky bet um, versus you know, maybe something else, right? Or, you know, maybe more upside versus downside, you know, protection. So, I mean, something she thinks about is when there's a sale, why do you need to pick um, yep. this? You could pick something else. Correct. And that's right. That was kind of the point I was trying to make yeah. was I don't think it's necessarily a great idea. I do think they're probably money making on average. But again, if that's all you're trying to do, there's other ways to make a little bit of money. Uh, if you're trying to, I look, as I said, I think on Friday, 
I, frankly, just a broad market ETF, you know, it's going to make money when the market rises is, is enough. You want to at least do that, right? Because it's just, it's not exactly shooting fish in a barrel. I shouldn't, I shouldn't seem to seem cavalier about it because there's no, you know, there's no reason it has to do that. It doesn't have to do that. It could go lower in the meantime. But broadly, if you get a market return when the market goes back to and then above previous highs, which is my expectation, then you're only doing, doing better that with individual stocks. And I don't think the banks are in the foreground. They're not the vanguard of stocks most likely to do that, I don't think. Yeah, and, and I think I agree with that, right? I mean, if I had to pick pick something, I'd, you know, between the, if those were the two choices, the 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 diversified market is a much better option, right? Yep. Because again, over the long term, we know the market typically rises, right? And if it doesn't rise, then we have bigger problems. Correct, you don't, you don't, you don't be caught in that in that scenario exactly. Yeah. That's, the, that's, the, that's the hard part. All right, um, question, <laughs> email anyway, um, email from, from Dave. Scott, I want to turn to ride the trusty steed. Oh, dear, I turn, sorry, to ride the trusty steed. It's on the high horse. My irritation is the misuse of mean versus median. In listening to the podcast, great listening, by the way, I've heard you say several times that nine out of 10 drivers consider themselves to be above average drivers. The implication is that it's not possible, but in fact, it is. Uh, Dave makes a very good point and... Uh, you know, he, he says, of course, it's possible if, if, the, if the one in 10 were so much better than the nine poor ones and you average those out, um, it's entirely possible. If you average the numbers one and 100, um, you're going to get 50 and a half. If you average the numbers a million and 100, you're going to get half a million, give or take. Um, so it's possible for the number to be different. And yes, um, you can be far enough above the average to matter. Um, median and mean are very different things. Dave, I appreciate that you, I think, knew uh, that my point was that just to make the broad point, but yes, I should say the median driver rather than the average driver when I'm talking about nine out of 10 being better than median, not average. All right. Um, there's an interesting question from uh, Blake who directs this to you, Doc. Um, mm. I don't know if you have an answer to this, so I'll ask it. He says, hi, Nibban. Thanks for the recommendations. I'm enjoying following these and buying when I can. Hopefully, it sounds like Blake's a member of Extreme Opportunities, your service, which... Quick ad. Our listeners can get a good deal on by going to fool.com.au forward slash EO podcast. That's EO for extreme opportunities, doc service. Fool.com.au forward slash EO podcast. All right. Uh, a quick question. Do you have one share that has the potential to be the biggest of them all in the next five to 10 years? I understand the risks, etc., but thought I would see if you have one stock that could be the best if things go well. Thanks and appreciate the feedback. Blake. Well, that's your question, mate, rather than mine. <laughs> what one stock, if you're prepared to put your neck on the line, Doc, has the potential to be the biggest of them all in five to ten years? Oh, this, this, this is hard because, I mean... <laughs> you that's know why I asked you, mate. <laughs> <laughs> so, like, here, I, I mean, I can give multiple answers, but okay. the, the thing here, the problem with this question, or the answer to this question, there's no problem with that question, the question is just fine, is, I mean, something could, like, I could think that it could, say 10x yes. but the probability that 10x is, is probably low right so i mean so it has the highest upside potential but the potential is uh, like you know there's a range of outcomes possible and maybe the 10x is only like either in my view 10 percent, yep. right yep. um right so at looking through i'm just i'm just trying to look through and and see um which ones well <laughs> this uh, this this is hard actually. Um, <laughs> the, well, okay. So one that I I, I think I had a couple of them. Uh, so I think Volpara could do really well. Um, a couple of reasons for Volpara Health Technologies. So the code is VHT. The, the, you know they they acquired this company called um, MRS, which basically provides. Um, a patient information system to uh, to breast cancer clinics that helps them, you know, gets gets the gets their door across um, a larger base, and then they can cross sell their um, uh, their Volpara um, enterprise solution, which basically is used for um, uh, breast uh, screening imaging. Mm -hmm. Right now, so this is a relatively small company. But it provides a, a software solution that is essential, right? So as long as breast cancer is a problem, these two solutions are necessary, right? You need a patient information system, and you need a patient information system that talks to this uh, imaging information system. Um, then, 
So I think that creates a long runway for opportunity. It creates a recurring revenue stream. Um, there is recognition that this is a big problem. So, you, you know, I, I think this is a business that can 10x uh, from here. It would be still relatively uh, small on a, on a sort of a global scale. If you think about uh, of, of a software, medical imaging, you know, a medical software business, and, and those can be nice and nicely cash generative. It is none of those things at this point. So I think that is one possibility in terms of what could uh, 10x. Again, you have to re- remember that this is not necessarily going to definitely do that, but I think this is a is a potential. Um, the thing, the thing I point out is many of the most of the stocks we recommend, we are really swinging, which we we think you know they should be high multi-baggers, uh, right. fully realizing that some of them are not going to make it. In fact, you know, we say that four out of 10 is, is sort of what the strike rate we are trying to, um, you know, we think we're going to achieve. And the other one that I think is, is fairly interesting is um, a, a company called Big Tin Can. So That has got one of the, my least favorite names of any company in the ISX, dog. Big yeah, Tin Can. Big and tin and can. Come on. Like, I, <laughs> so, so the reason I, the reason I think that's interesting is a couple of reasons. They, so they provide what's called sales enab- enablement software. So basically, there's a software that salespeople use uh, for you know essentially making sales and deals and so on. So and and it allows collaboration between various salespeople, sharing of information, sharing of data, sharing of processes. It is basically. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, a step above sort of doing, uh, you know, uh, a CRM, right? Customer relationship management, right? It's just a sort yep. of, you know, it's a step, I guess the step before that, right? Uh, you know, and, and it could be the same customers that you try to sell to, which in, in which case it's an upsell. Um, again, the reason I like this company is um, it, it is providing a software solution. So it's a relatively capitalized company. It has got a bunch of modules targeting a bunch of different sectors. Mm. Now, again, we have to remember a lot of these sectors right now are closed or not performing at or not operating at, so you know, growth can be hit. They came out with an announcement suggesting that they have, you know, they're still likely to meet their growth targets or they said that they reaffirmed their growth targets. They're going to make, they meet it. They are able to remotely work out still. And um, again, I would expect that if, if sales enablement is actually making a difference, then you'd think the churn mm. uh, for this sort of software um, is going to be low. The reason I think this can be a 10x is basically the valuation is, is relatively cheap for a SaaS type of software type of company. So so if you, if you think from a valuation point of view, is relatively cheap and you know maybe a 10x is possible. You know, so again, if not a 10x, maybe a 5x is, is quite, possible if the company is around and growing sort of the current rate then a 5x is possible so so sort of to give you yeah so those sort of are the two um ideas so that's volpara which is code vht and big tin cam which i almost can't bring myself to say but i will bth yeah. is the BTH code right? is the code so those are sort of two ideas there are a bunch of others again i like sort of all the companies that we have on buy not uh, you know we have a bunch of companies on hold uh largely because of coronavirus situation so um uh, the you know I do think that the buys that we have currently got are uh, at, at good good value point. Again, I wouldn't you know want to talk about more because then I'm going to be releasing more of the um, scorecard. I guess this I can talk about one more. <laughs> so <laughs> you got it uh, going, Blake. You can't uh, stop now. So so I'm going to talk about one more. This one I think is is interesting because um, so this is a company called a Goat Milk Company. Now <laughs> you know Scott is already laughing. Goat Milk. Um, called Bubs. Um, Code is B-U-B. B-U-B. This, I think, is interesting because there's, there's a strong demand for their product. They own pretty much almost all the goat milk in Australia, New Zealand, or the majority of the goat milk in Australia, New Zealand. So as long as that category of goat milk from this part of the world is in demand, I think uh, they're likely to do well. They've got some strong partnerships, uh, especially in the Asian market, which, again, puts them in a good good footing, I think, Um Again, I, I think you know this. To, there, I see some similarities here between sort of you know the early A two, um, A two milk and A two milk, for example, has been a big, a huge success. Uh, if you know if you bought A two milk say you know, five years ago, then it's probably a ten bagger for you. Uh, so sort of that 
sort of view. Uh, for full disclosure, again, disclosure is important here. I personally own shares in uh, in Bob's. Again, mm-hmm. you know, none of these companies. I would, you know, I'd, I'd say I'd, I'd add one more caution. I own shares that does you know don't don't assume that to mean that you know you should go like all in back in the back the truck. <laughs> the reason I say that is um, these are riskier companies, so you should size your positions accordingly. Again, you know what accordingly is. It depends on position. So my positions are small in Bubs, and I do own uh, my position in Volpara is slightly bigger, but that's because you know I've, I've owned it for a long time, and it's been actually a, a, a good winner. Mm. Um, so so that it's slightly bigger, but again, it's still a relatively small position to you know some of my larger positions. So again, I own those two. I don't actually own Big Tin Can. However, I'll, I'll add a caveat. I've tried, you know, the, the platform on which I buy the stock, <laughs> they don't actually provide Big Tin Can. They've never <laughs> provided it. And there have been a number of times when I wanted to buy yeah. it, and, and I just couldn't buy it because my broker doesn't have that stock available to me. So I've just given up on it, saying, <laughs> well, and, and I could buy it on another broker platform, but, you know, how many broker platforms do you want to manage? So good reminder when you're choosing brokers to make sure you actually can get the stocks you're looking for yeah like this this broker platform actually has some liquidity you know like even right. super super you know if you're buying stuff in super for example yep. they, they would sometimes cut off stuff for you huh. because it doesn't um you know they believe that you know it has to have certain amount of liquidity brokers go. can do a lot of things three stocks from doc for absolutely free how good is that i'm going to say something mate that you may or may not agree with but i think you'll agree um all i would say blake is great question but please for the love of god don't just buy one or two or three stocks and hope to make money doc's already said that at eo he expects four out of ten to be the strike rate in other words more are going to lose than win but he believes strongly and certainly evidence backs this out that if he does it well and he did he does do he does do it well uh, that the winners will more than pay for the losers and leave lots of money left over to beat the market on top of that. That's the way they're investing. Um, so I have no doubt of his conviction of those three stocks, but I would imagine, mate, you would think just probabilistically at least one of those doesn't do anywhere near as well as you think? Yeah, well, well, you know, like I think what you said is absolutely correct, right? I mean, again, that's why I said the position sizing is important. Correct. And what you're saying is that you should be diversified. Correct. Yeah, don't back the truck. Yep. Don't buy one stock. Correct. You know, even if I say, even if I have, have super high conviction to yep. say that Bubs is going to be like a 100 bagger, I yes. wouldn't say any, tell anyone that you should put all your money in, you know. And quite honestly, mate, you and I had... Uh, not exactly a super high, a very high level of conviction webjet four months ago. Oh yeah, like I mean, we I didn't expect that. You know, yeah. Even even outside, you know, something outside the company's control could always yeah, come stuff, and hit companies. So. Yeah, there's stuff that can happen that no one sees, yeah. and you know, investing can be very humbling, right? I mean, you know, it's very humbling. <laughs> we know that on Absolutely. this very podcast, yes. I have said multiple times, yes. I like the company, exactly. right? And and I think it's doing a great job. It's growing very well. Exactly. It's webbed's business is fantastic, you know, and and again, and yet. And yet, yep. it, yet we, here we are. I, I'm actually happy to see that the stock has not fallen to 175, which is which is a small win. Yes. The more I the more I think of, diversification is, is is the right word. The more I think about this, the more I think the most important word in investing, maybe second most, temperament's probably still number one, is portfolio. Right? Just like for everything that we talk about, for all the stocks that we talk about, for all of our high conviction, you know, we don't own just one or two or three stocks each. Even though Doc said, you know, those are his three best ideas. He owns two of those three. But I dare say, mate, there's small proportions of your total portfolio in, in, in some. And we want our members and our listeners to be investing similarly. Yeah, absolutely. All right. I reckon this might be the last one, mate. We'll see how we go for timing. This one comes from Stephen. I love this question because sometimes we do assume, we try to explain our terms when we're going. We don't necessarily always explain our approach or the philosophy behind what we do. So Stephen says, hi, Doc and Scott. In brackets, I thought it was time to reverse the order. That's probably fair. Yes, yes, love the podcast, etc. Well, you know we all do. Stephen, we all like to be told. We all <laughs> like to be told. Um, you know, it's Billy Joel's song. Tell her about it. Tell her everything she means. You know, just just give us. You know, we're not we don't exist in a vacuum. Anyway, Stephen says one question for you: Why the obsession with beating the market? Surely, if you're managing decent returns that are ahead of term deposit rates, then that's enough. I know fund managers use the index as a benchmark to entice you to place funds with them rather than an ETF with the air quotes promise that you'll do better with them than with Vanguard. But really, why should the average investor care? Looking forward to your discussion, Stephen. Doc, why on earth are we obsessed with beating the market? Stephen, this is a fantastic question, actually. A really hard one. Yeah. Uh, this is a great question to ask. You know, in all honesty, for for many people, this, this you know, and 
we're probably one of the few businesses we can actually say this and probably I wouldn't get fired. Maybe, uh, maybe we'll figure it out next week. Stand by. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what going to say yet. So, uh, so, so it maybe. might be the Scott point. You better hope for everyone out there who likes listening to Doc, you better hope he doesn't say anything that gets him fired. Here. Uh, so here's, here's the interesting, you know, maybe our, our co-founder, um, co-founder and CEO will also back me on this. For, 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 for a section of investors, probably investing in index funds and being invested and just getting market returns, which delivers better returns than a term deposit or any other cash asset, is probably fantastic, right? And and it's fantastic because the alternative is mm. if you didn't do that, you just lost out on making 8 9% or whatever the yep. market is going to deliver. So you absolutely, I think, um, that is a great starting point for anybody who doesn't have the time, inclination, ability, willingness, or whatever, yep. that is absolutely great. You should absolutely do that. So that answers the first part. Now, <laughs> uh, why? So I think, you know, if somebody doesn't want to do that and they have no inclination to get the 2% extra or 3% extra or 1% extra, um, well, I would say go and do an ETF and or a couple of ETFs and something like that. Yep. Now, why is the obsession? Why do you uh, want to beat the market, Doc? Tell yeah, us. Yeah. So here's the first of all, it's a great sport. <laughs> I love that sport. That sport is fantastic. But here's there's a little thing here. If somebody is investing now, I don't have a calculator here, but I've had to pull it up now. I've, I've had the same idea, mate. Yeah, so you keep so, talking. I'll do some talking. So here's the thing: somebody's <laughs> investing for thirty years and getting, yeah. um, you know, seven percent returns. Or eight. Let's assume the market is going to do eight percent. I like to say eight percent. Scott likes to say ten percent. I love to say eight percent because I just like to say eight percent. We're, among, we're among friends. Let's go. With yeah. It. So if you get one percent extra, I would bet that over a thirty-year period. That is a substantial amount of extra money. Right, two percent extra would be phenomenally extra money, and if you get three percent extra, you're probably like you know, uh, dancing on the moon or the equivalent of that, three or four percent, right? <laughs> because of the fact, the sheer fact of compounding. Now, this you know, if you just do this math with, um, you know, and I, I can do I can do it off, off the top of my head. If you if you are if you are doubling your money, say at um, sorry, not doubling. If you're getting a nine percent return, then you double your money every eight years. Yep. But if you get a twelve percent return, you double your money every six years, right? And that really starts taking an impact if you take a long-term view. So, in fact, for somebody with a thirty-year horizon, this can actually have a substantial, life-changing wealth impact. Right? Yeah, correct. And, and and that's the reason the obsession with beating the market. And it, it, there's another reason. There's another reason here, and, and and that is, if you think about the market, right? The market, the Australian market, let's say, has eighteen hundred companies. I think roughly, give or take a bit. Mm-hmm. You don't need to own all eighteen hundred because if you really think hard, and you know, at any given point in time, you could probably make a list thirty mm-hmm. odd companies that would probably together are great companies, good companies that are delivering good returns, going to likely deliver good returns and do better better than owning 1,800. So why do you need to own 1,800 if you can get better results by owning those 30 odd companies as an example, right? Um, so, I mean, all of those reasons, but, you know, mostly compounding and time is the main reason I would say that, you know, mm. we're obsessed with beating the market because, again, it makes a difference, makes a big difference. Yep. Uh, I'm going to just give you some numbers, mate, because you, you've, you've absolutely nailed it. So, well, first things first, I think matching the market is wonderful. And the, when you try and beat the market, you can also lose to the market. So there's, there's that risk you're taking. You're taking it for extra upside, and I think it's worth trying for most people if you have, as Doc's already said, the inclination, the interest, the ability to do so. If you So let's take a 40-year time horizon just for fun, Doc. Uh, if we invested 10 grand today, sorry, uh, yeah, let's go 10 grand. I'm sure my numbers. I'm speaking, mate. How's this? this is this is this is real time Excel. This work, is real right time now. work. This is, this is how it all happens, right? If you were to invest ten grand today and get eight percent a year in forty years' time, that money is as I desperately screw up my spreadsheet. Well, <laughs> this is real time. All right. If you invest eight percent, I've done it again. I pressed some buttons. Going going strange on me. All right. Third time lucky. If you invest eight percent for forty years, ten grand becomes two hundred and seventeen thousand dollars now that's worth stopping alone right mm-hmm. if you just get the market return you get a 20-fold return on your cash mm-hmm. 20-fold over 40 years who doesn't want to do that so that's the first thing right 
eight percent, two hundred seventy grand. Let's let's let, I'll I'll give Doc this one. So let's assume the market's going to do eight percent. Mm-hmm. That's a pretty good return. Now, if you invest ten, if you invest twenty grand, that's four hundred grand. Mm-hmm. If you invest fifty grand, that's a million bucks. And again, you're not going to just add it once; you're going to add it over your lifetime. But this is just very very simple. One off. Put money in. Leave it there. Ten grand. Two hundred. If you get nine percent, okay, that's that's one percentage point more. If you want to do the math, that's twelve and a half percent greater or return between eight and nine, right? But the money doesn't go up by twelve percent. Doesn't go up by fifty percent. It goes up. Sorry, it does, it does go up by fifty percent. It goes from two hundred seventeen thousand to three hundred fourteen thousand. If you get one percentage point more return, you get fifty percent more cash. Right? That's nine percent. At ten percent, you get fifty percent again more cash. So at ten percent over forty years, four hundred fifty thousand dollars. Now let's go back to the original eight. Between eight and ten percent, as a twenty percent higher, twenty five percent higher return. You're getting more than double the amount of money at the end of the process. So you're not you don't have to get double the return to get double the money. The way compounding works, instead of two hundred seventeen grand at eight, you're getting four hundred fifty thousand dollars at ten percent. Let's say you get twelve percent to Doc's point. That's that ten grand becomes nine hundred thirty thousand dollars. If you can compound at twelve percent for forty years, and frankly that's not easy. I'm not saying everyone can do it. Some people shouldn't try. Some people just will try and fail. But if you, you could get twelve percent for that long. Your two hundred seventeen thousand dollars becomes instead nine hundred thirty thousand dollars. It's a ninety-three times return compared to a twenty times return, just for getting extra four percentage points of annualized investment return on your cash. And that, in a nutshell, is exactly why it's super worth doing. Now, Stephen, you might say it's being greedy. That might be arguable. You might say it's too hard. That might be arguable. You might say it's too risky. That also might be arguable. But that, in black and white, is exactly why many people, including us, decide that it's worth having a go because you know if you don't manage to and you get just the market return instead you know worse off you can absolutely be worse off and for many people if you can invest for five years and can't beat the market i'd probably say you know what it's time to go and play golf take up another hobby to doc's point choose a different sport and just invest in the in the market you'll get a great return i think the market's gonna be closer to 10 than 8 but it doesn't matter what it is um what well, doesn't mean in dollar terms but broadly speaking the market return is there effectively risk-free it's not volatility free but it's effectively risk-free you can get a really really nice return from the market just by regularly adding cash and going fishing but if you make the effort and you can do it the rewards are phenomenally worthwhile for those who can achieve a better than benchmark return i have nothing to add to that if that's the case mate we might call it quits. What do you reckon? We should. I think this is the greatest point of the podcast i guess in that sense <laughs> um and we should call it quits here there you go. With that nine hundred and thirty thousand uh, dollar bait, we call it bait. Uh, it's a bait. incentive. It's, 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 it's a it's but it's a, it's a it's a true incentive. Well, that's what I'm saying. Yeah, right. Yeah. So like it, with, with that with that dangling in front of you, if it's not worth trying, I don't know what is. Again, make sure you're good at it. You don't want to lose money, but remember that's the sort of reward on offer if you can if you can do it well. That's what we're trying to do at the Motley Fool, of course. And we're we're biased, right? But uh, I'll say the same thing for Doc. I'm, I'm pretty sure it's true for him. I'm not. I'm not a shares. I'm not. I'm not a guy who works for the Motley Fool. Who, who therefore is a shares guy. I was a customer of the Motley Fool. I was a member of the Motley Fool. I believe in what we're doing. I joined the Motley Fool. Took a pay cut to do it because I wanted to help other people see the value I saw. So people say, "Oh, you're a shares guy." Of course, you'd say that. Well, it's kind of the reverse, right? I'm a shares guy because I know that's true. All right. Any more? Do you want to? I think that's the same story for you know. That's the same story for me. I mean, you know, I'm a shares guy because right. I, I saw that there's it's a value. Right? It's very compelling. There, there is something here, and and it's interesting. That, you know, the other reason we do it is we want more people to realize this, and we want them to realize this as early as possible. Right. Because the more time you've got, the the oh, bigger man. the win. Next week, I'm going to give you my superannuation idea. Hey, there's a there's a tease for our okay. listeners. <laughs> next next week, next month, if we do a mailbag next week, we may you know, we may not. We if we do. I'm going to give you a it's kind of a quasi high horse. I'm going to give you my superannuation idea that I think beats every other superannuation idea out there. Now, I'm not saying it's something you can necessarily follow. I don't, want to, I don't want to. I don't want to be a bait and switch. I'm not saying that everyone should listen because they're going to get some great investment insight. I'm going to give you a policy insight into how the government could fix super next week. Cool. Looking forward to that. I like that idea. We're done. Before you go, though, don't forget you can and should subscribe to the Triple M Motley Full Money Podcast through iTunes or your favorite Android podcast app. If you like what we're doing, tell your friends, leave us a rating, leave us a review, write it in skywriting above the major capital cities of the country. If, if, you've, got a, if you've got a plane, a skywriting plane, just get out there and I think MMM, Triple M, then MFM, Motley for Money, would be great. If you can take, take a photo, if you really care, if you really love us, you'll do it for us. I know you will. Those of you who had skywriting planes, if you don't have a skywriting plane, just feel free to 
I don't know, change your number plate or um or I don't know, send mm. your send your friends an email, do social media something. <laughs> too much time? No. It's not too much. <laughs> and of course, you can get a dose of foolishness straight to your inbox and an offer to join Dividend Investor by going to fool.com.au forward slash triple M. Triple M. That's it for this week's Motley Fool Money. We'll be back next week with another dose of foolish insight. Fool on. Fool on. The Motley Fool and people appearing in this program may have positions in the companies mentioned. General advice only. Please speak to your financial professional to understand how it may pertain to your situation. Subscribe to the free newsletter at fool.com.au forward slash triple M. The Motley Fool operates under financial services license 400691.